All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> One thing I respect about serial killers, and perhaps you'll agree, is their ability to act on their desires. Conceive, believe, achieve, whether you're manifesting happiness and wealth or transforming sadistic sexual urges into a viciously violent lifestyle, it's attractive. Positively or negatively, it doesn't matter. There's a push or pull, something visceral the rest of us feel when beholding a body of work, a human life, spent doing exactly what it was compelled to do, what it wanted. And yeah, it sounds really messed up when it's applied to serial killers, I know, but it's true. Nice guys finish last, as nice guys, more often than not, are just weak men, finishing last because they let opportunities pass them by. They're stagnant, waiting for life to happen to them, though... Most often when it does, they fail to act. Well, wait, that's not entirely true. They will act. Act like they're tying a shoe until the moment fades and they can meld with monotony once again. They're agreeable, subservient. I know this because I was this. A weakling content to have others pity me, happy to go along with those stronger, hunkered down within my body behind my own eyes as if weathering a storm 
I, of course, got sick of this and for a while began to overcompensate, overreacting to perceived slights, depending on contrived bravado to gain respect or to scare people off, faking it until I started making it. And we all had to start somewhere, us so-called alphas. It worked for me. I got to where I felt comfortable and to where I didn't need to make others feel weak in order to feel strong, but it doesn't stick. Confidence. It needs to be kept in shape as well as in check. Unfortunately, many exercise their will in their homes, on their loved ones. You know the type. The red-faced maniac on the road, swerving around behind you, his family red-faced from embarrassment as their little king safely asserts his paper dominance on people he'll never truly confront. This type, I'd personally like to kill. Kick a door in while he's holding court and shove his head in the toilet where it belongs. I don't think I'll ever kill anyone, intentionally. I've had my moments, my evenings, where I looked back on my day of brooding, of near planning, but in the end I've come to realize that I just don't have it in me. I'm too hesitant. I think things through too much. And above all else, I can't stand to see someone in pain or fear. It really doesn't matter what they've done to me. I'm helpless to have mercy when it's asked of me. I can't even get on a bus before someone else. I'm always last aboard. It's not that I love people. It's that I hate them and I don't want to be anything like them. And it slowed me down. My loathing makes it easy to give up, to check out, to step aside. But then you have those who never hesitated to be what they wanted to be, to take what the rest of us usually see as something or some way for someone else, someone far more intelligent, brave, or even sick. I can look around and see every single person I've ever met behind me, and to a man, or a woman, they all believed that someday something would become of their lives. Something big, something outstanding. But it never does, unless you or me or they one morning get up and put the plan in motion, one afternoon keep the momentum rolling, then finally one evening look back, proud in your day, and if not proud, at least impressed. And this is how it begins. The first time I truly stood up for myself, stood up for an idea, broke through apathy, took action in real life, not just in my mind, I felt the spirit smile, sensed the universe taking notice. The atmosphere within and around me fluttered just a little. Standing out to the world felt like being atop a hill on a roller coaster. My stomach lurched. I floated through the moment because it was unusual against my previous nature. I didn't always hang in there with the action. Sometimes I would step off the ride, letting the cart go rumbling down the track, useless, empty, much like I'd feel every time I'd wimp out. But eventually, I figured out how to act without it feeling like a do-or-die decision. This life, this is not a bus stop, this life. It's a proving ground. You have to take charge, drive your own bus, if you ever want to feel your spirit. And you have to do it with purpose. You can't let it get away from you either. You must let the spirit move you, not take you away. Like with what happened to Robert Maudsley. 
the monster of Monster Mansion. For almost half a century, Robert Maudsley has been kept in solitary confinement within Britain's Wakefield Prison, a.k.a. the Monster Mansion. His specialty cell inspired the living quarters of Anthony Hopkins' character Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs, a bulletproof glass box that, unlike Hannibal's, sits behind a concrete box and a metal door, making it at least twice as secure as the one in the movie. He's in the basement, in the solitary confinement block of one of the world's most notorious maximum security prisons, in a specialty cell made just for him, the purpose being to keep guards and other inmates safe. He's Monster Mansion's most secured resident, the crown jewel of chaos, Robert Maudsley. Over the decades, he hasn't been entirely alone. On occasion, he's yelled out to his neighbors, had a few almost friends, but always, in the end, Maudsley, an old man now with a long gray beard and hair that makes him look ancient, is alone. He's also incorrigible, even by the standards of men like famed prisoner Charlie Bronson, who attempted once to befriend the so-called brain eater by having a guard pass a wristwatch to him as a show of friendship after they'd gotten along a bit, shouting to one another through the walls over a stretch. Hannibal the cannibal took one look at the gift and told the guards to be rid of it, exclaiming loud enough for Bronson, one of Britain's most infamous criminals, to hear that the gift was stupid, and sarcastically growled that the last thing a man in his position needed was to be reminded of time passing. Bronson was outraged. How dare he? How dare Maudsley disrespect him? Did he not know who he was? They've made movies about Bronson. His violent reputation is legend in the prison system. But Robert Maudsley was completely unimpressed, completely disinterested in anything outside of his PlayStation 2 and his Call of Duty game. Maudsley doesn't get the papers. He doesn't know who the fuck Bronson is. And also, Bronson isn't a sweetheart. Everything done in prison has slime on it. And Maudsley, a bona fide killer, wasn't amused by this gift, so-called gift at all. It was disrespect. A power move. Maudsley's down there, locked up in a fishbowl underground for decades, his only motivation to live being that he may set a world record for the longest-served sentence in solitary. And he had little patience for pricks, like Bronson. It is said that when Bronson threatened to kill Maudsley, shouting out the promise one evening, following the rejection of his gift, Maudsley exploded. He accurately shouted back, spit back, from his goldfish bowl, amplifying the accurate insult, quote, you've never killed anyone, you soft cunt. And he's right. Bronson never has, though he's one of Britain's most feared men. He and Maudsley are highly intelligent, highly volatile, highly likely to die in the pit of a place named Monster Mansion. But Bronson, unlike Maudsley, never killed anybody. Still, the two look to be joining forces. But Robert Mosley is not one to be won over. Over the years, he's been kept company by the voices of many infamous men. The Yorkshire Ripper, for one, Peter Sutcliffe, 
sent to the hole on occasion, mostly as a way to protect him from assaults and rapes. It might make you happy to know that prison hasn't been kind to the little evil. He had his eyes stabbed at with a pen while at Broadmoor Mental Hospital, making him near blind. A coffee pot across the face had caused Setcliffe to fear so badly for his safety that he'd been transferred to the hospital, only to find there is no safe place in the world for a man like Sutcliffe. His eyes may be partially blinded, but the guards have a habit of going deaf any time he screams for help. To go dumb whenever asked how poor Peter Sutcliffe seems to bloody his small clothes on a weekly basis. Yes, the Yorkshire Ripper has been down in the Wakefield dungeon, where Robert Maudsley, like an old silverback in a zoo, barely acknowledged Sutcliffe's presence or status. Same went for the crossbow killer, Stephen Griffiths, who I covered. The case is available exclusively on Patreon if you search for it, the crossbow killer. Stephen Griffiths isn't so cocksure in prison, apparently. He spends most of his time faking mental illness in a solitary cell not too far from Maudsley. These days, his goal, his dream, is to be relocated to Broadmoor, where the prisoners are a little more malleable. Apparently, his moody little bitch act hasn't flown well so far with staff or fellow prisoners. So they've often put him in the hole. Who else has been down there? Oh yeah, Harold Shipman, Britain's own Dr. Death, responsible for over 200 premature passings of his patients. Shipman spent some time down below breathing air with Maudsley, but eventually he would kill himself while up above with the population, apparently hanging himself with a sheet from the bars of a window. It's suspected that the doctor's death was assisted. If so, nobody's saying a word. And outside the walls, there isn't much of an outcry. What a place. What a strange, fascinating little hole to know of. The monster mansion. Robert Maudsley down below, in a cell so unique it was stolen for the big screen. He's allowed out in the yard for an hour each day, alone, Guards told not to speak to him. He grows his gray hair out, lets his fingernails curl on occasion. But he no longer dreams of being let go. He, unlike most of those in Wakefield, has resigned to his fate. They will never, ever let him out. They can't. Robert Maudsley is thought to be the most dangerous inmate in the UK, a monster among monsters, and I... Of course, I'm going to tell you why. But first, I want to share that if I had to choose one cell to share with any one inmate in the basement of Wakefield, it would be Maudsley's. And how, you might be thinking, how could that be? Well, besides Charles Bronson, sorry, Charles Salvador now, like Salvador Dali, but who gives a shit anymore. Keep it down, Charles. Besides the Yorkshire Ripper or the now-dead Dr. Shipman or the misanthropic crossbow killer, Maudsley is the least likely to kill or harm an everyday regular human being like myself. He's the least likely of the bunch. Maudsley is a monster of monsters. Men like Britain's worst serial rapist, Richard Baker, a man who nearly escaped Wakefield in mid-2000 and surely would have gone on to rape more and probably killed this time. Men like Hissing Sid, a notorious pedophile whose life is so in danger up above that he'll likely never leave solitary. Maybe someday compete with Maudsley for time served in the hole, in fact. Or how about Ian Watkins, 
the disgraced lost prophet singer who spends all of his time in solitary following his convictions for brutal assaults on children and babies. Watkins spends most of his time shouting at his end of conversation with Mick Philpot, another beast down here whom I wrote about for an episode of Sword and Scale, a plus episode, I believe, so it'll never see the light of day. But Philpot, like many of the others, committed his acts against children, burned his own alive, in fact, as part of an insurance scam gone wrong. Who else? Hey, check out Roy Whitting or Whiting or whatever the fuck his name is down here for raping and murdering an eight-year-old girl. Down here because up there is too dangerous for him. Whiting barely survived a stabbing attack in early 2000 and is here to stay. Next to the dragon. Robert Maudsley. Here's the thing. Here is why I'd bunk with the monster of Monster Mansion, if forced to choose. It's because I'm not a pedophile. I'm not a sexual offender. I'm not a loudmouth abuser that would remind Mr. Maudsley of his horrific childhood. So I'd be safe. We'd play chess or call of duty these days. I'd cut his gigantic toenails for him with my teeth if he made me. Sucking dick might be a problem. I got TMJ there, Robert. Can we, uh, can we make a deal? A massage, perhaps? I'd maybe bring a little comfort to a monster of monsters, a man who never had much of a chance, but who took every opportunity he could to dole out pain and fear and misery on those that had caused so much of their own. Robert Maudsley was born on June 26th of 1953 in Liverpool, England, to two parents who couldn't care less about his arrival. Robert and his brothers and sisters were taken from the home by child services before Robert could develop a lasting memory of his earliest life, a life spent in squalor, lying on his back getting a flathead no doubt and whipping his own feces around a cold crib. He and his siblings were sent to a Catholic orphanage where they were treated well by the nuns. Robert grew into a highly intelligent and well-spoken young man and had no real qualms with his lot in life. I say well-spoken then, but now not so much. Robert has barely spoken to anyone for the past 40 years, and when he does get the chance, it is said that he has developed a speech impediment. This orphanage was all he knew, and they took well care of him. He'd hope some day that he'd be adopted by a loving family along with his brothers and sisters, but the chances of them all being swept up were extremely low, so the brood had accepted their new life and looked forward to growing up under the care of the church in a situation completely unlike most true crime tales involving men and women of God tasked to care for kids. There was no abuse here. It was a place functioning just as it should, a home for orphans, headed by people wanting to help, a respite from the evils of the world, an institution churning out well-rounded young adults, a place dedicated to giving kids like eight-year-old Robert Maudsley 
the tools needed for a fair shot at this life. But then his parents took them back. His mother and father suddenly reappeared, and having shown that they could handle a family by having another six kids without incident while their first batch blossomed in the orphanage, they were given their list of children back, and young Robert Maudsley couldn't have been less enthused. Somewhere, deep down, the baby brain of the boy who one day would become known as the Brain Eater lit up with alarm. Maudsley was taken from the only home he'd ever known and placed with a mother who couldn't care less about him and a father who wanted to make up for lost time, beating and molesting his most outspoken boy. His dozen or so siblings seemed to know better how to lay low. Robert probably knew better too, but he would never be one to be quiet and cower in exchange for becoming a less bruised victim. He'd rather be purple than yellow. And so it began almost immediately once the nuns in the orphanage shrunk away in the rear view. His mother was the informant, his father the enforcer. She used the kids to keep from being assaulted herself. He used the kids to satisfy his sadism. Robert was his favorite. He kept him locked up in his room for months at a time, feeding him punches and, on occasion, it's been said, semen. He'd rape Robert. Maudsley's father would beat him senseless and then rape him, often on account of something his wife had made up, just to get the demons out of her ferocious husband. So it should come as no surprise that when Robert was old enough, around the age of 15, he ran away from home. His father would tell his siblings he was dead and to never speak of him again. And out there on the streets of Liverpool, young Robert Maudsley might as well have been a ghost. He fit in in the streets. He looked the part. Tall, gangly, strong and filthy. It took no time at all for him to be hooked on drugs. It took even less time for him to find work as a rent boy doing men's sexual favors in exchange for drugs and food and a spell of shelter. It was a good life in comparison to what he'd had, and after a while he just got used to it. It wasn't until he was approaching his twenties, in the year of 1973, that the voices he'd sometimes hear whispering in his head began to speak up. He should kill his parents. He should go back now that he was big, and kill them for what they were. And now he had a purpose. Before it was all about escaping pain, but now suddenly he wanted to bring it, badly. He wanted payback. John Farrell, a mid-aged queen who'd lost his wife, his beard, once she'd found out what he was doing on those long Saturday nights. Young men he was doing, sometimes boys, in his car but he was looking for a long-term rental, and he'd been thinking that Robert Maudsley might clean up well enough to fit the bill. He had a room out in the country a bit, and there he had been feeding Robert drugs and alcohol for weeks in exchange for sex and companionship. Farrell would be Maudsley's first. Not his first man, his first abuser, no. That had been his father. Farrell would be Maudsley's. First victim. 
He'd made the mistake of showing Robert pictures of the little boys he'd managed to get alone, shown Maudsley proof that he was a pedophile, and as a result caused the voices in the young maniac's mind to sing, sing a song of destruction that had Maudsley on top of Farrell in an instant, the old pervert huskily whispering, yes, yes, as a rope was wrapped around his throat. Moments later, it was, no, stop, please, no, but he was too late. Farrell, like Frankenstein, had brought the monster and Maudsley to life. The photos of the boys in distress had done it. And soon Farrell was being ridden on the stained mattress for the last time. His face went blue, and Maudsley tied the rope, letting it do the slow work, while he took to stabbing Farrell with his pocket knife. Pop, pop, hiss, hiss. This was fun. Some of the stabs let loose a gush of blood, while others seemed to absorb into the gasping fuck. Robert enjoyed the killing, thrilled in the power, basked in the bloody mess of a man who thought he'd get away with it and never end up under it. It felt good to kill one of them. It felt right to make whatever happened to those boys in the photos in some way square with their attacker. He didn't even try to get away. He went to the pub, called in the murderer himself, and was taken in without incident, feeling free for the first time in his life as a cell door slammed behind him. If ever there was a fresh prisoner in need of psychological help, it was the 20-year-old version of Robert Maudsley, coming down off of years of drug use and reeling mentally from the culmination of all the abuse that had now led to murder. And they gave it to him. Mosley was shipped to Broadmoor, Britain's infamous and storied institution for the criminally insane, where, after getting the lay of the land and firmly planting his feet as the type of prisoner who absolutely is not to be messed with, he grabbed a known pedophile, David Francis, and along with another inmate, dragged him into an office. Francis had raped another inmate recently, so Maudsley, a tall and now strapping 22-year-old with a real taste for revenge now, barricaded the office and took to torturing the convicted child molester with a radio antenna. His accomplice, a man named Cheeseman, tied the pedophile up with wire from a record player, and Maudsley went to work for nine hours. David Francis's screams can be heard throughout this section of the hospital, and it's still not clear why the prison staff had such a hard time getting to him. The screams for help were thick and desperate. The type of screams that likely to this day can be heard on occasion, ringing out residually through Broadmoor. They cut and sliced and beat on Francis until his voice went hoarse. They raped him with table legs, shoved the antenna into his ear, mocked him, humiliated him, eventually murdered him when Maudsley wrapped a garrote around his throat to finally end the mess. Francis had had his head split open, like a soft-boiled egg, and a spoon was sticking out of his brain when Cheeseman finally unbarricaded the door. Maudsley would forever be known as the cannibal following the murder, as some of the brain was missing. Hannibal the cannibal was the eventual moniker when Silence of the Lambs came out, but until then he'd simply be known as Spoons, the inmate killer, the pedophile hunter, a monster among monsters, and too crazy, even for a place like Broadmoor.
despite the insanity of Francis's murder and despite it happening inside of an insane asylum, Mosley was found to have been of sound mind when he killed the man. He was shipped off to Wakefield Prison, where he immediately became the most feared inmate in the institution. And it didn't take long for him to live up to that reputation. Mosley wasn't happy with his new home, so after discovering he was surrounded by sex offenders, he decided to see if he couldn't do something crazy enough to be sent back to the madhouse. It was an early morning in July of 1978 when Mosley's cell block became the hunting ground for a serial killer of sex offenders. Inmates present that day said that Mosley had murder in his eyes. He also had a shank appropriately fashioned from a spoon, which had the cell block on high alert, though the guards were none the wiser. Mosley snatched one of his targets as he passed by his cell, like a crocodile dragging a baby antelope from the shore. And he had the man dead from ferocious stab wounds to the back, chest, and face within minutes. Mosley retrieved some string from under his mattress and wrapped it tight around his victim's neck, a 46-year-old sex offender named Solony Darwood, who'd been serving at a manslaughter conviction after killing his wife. Once Darwood's face flushed blue, another nickname of Mosley's, blue, for the way he always left his victims, Robert rolled the soon-to-be corpse under his bunk and went looking for another victim. Can you imagine a man fearsome enough to have killers running and hiding, to have rapists and child molesters screaming to the guards for protection? A monster among monsters, kept today in one of the most secure units in the world, not for the protection of the public so much as for the protection of the public's worst perpetrators. He got one more that day. 56-year-old William Roberts, a convicted child molester, was lying on his bunk when Robert Mosley entered and casually, almost playfully, began stabbing the man. Mosley grinned wide as the man begged for mercy, but like a robotic horror movie villain, Mosley just kept going, ramping up, in fact, to match the man's screams. The pedophile wasn't yet dead when Mosley picked him up by the ankles and started swinging him into the walls. The inmates crowded round the cell, even the most hardened, watched with disgust as Mosley smashed his victim's head over and over with seemingly endless intensity into anything with a corner on it until there was nothing left, until Mosley got down in the man's face and was squeezing his brains through his fingers like pork paste, spinning round to scatter a dozen or so hardened criminals who wanted nothing to do with this straight-up psycho, this killing machine, bent on making misery for those who reminded him of his father for those who had stolen from children their innocence and replaced it with confusion, fear, and all the ingredients for self-destruction. He had found his purpose, and now he had made his point. Maudsley, as he always had done, turned himself in without further incident, telling the jailer that he'd be too short for roll call that evening. He was taken to solitary, where he fell asleep, forever. He still dreams down there, in the bowels of the beast known as Wakefield, known as the Monster Mansion. He tried to plead his case, but that only ended up in him being encased. And what else do you really want from Maudsley? What should they do, now that he's nearly 70 years old and completely gone mad, if you're to believe Charles Bronson? Should they let him out? He requested a cyanide pill after he was refused a pet, a budgie, and maybe that would have been best. They had to let him go in that way. Instead, he rotted. 
He rotted until a proper warning came in and allowed him to have his Call of Duty game on his PS2. And hey, that's at least something for the guy. For decades, he only had the vents to scream into. He had the spiders to play with. He'd had his harassment of the sex killers around him, the child torturers and villains, veined out all about. Rivlets in a hive around a queen or a king. There's no doubt that he cracked long before being buried alive down there. But the cracking is blessedly stopped now. He's just kind of calcified down there now. Some days not even bothering to take his hour of fresh air below the gray skies of Wakefield, surrounded by six guards instructed not to listen or speak or touch Maudsley if they don't have to. His weirdo nephew visits sometimes, acts like he cares about him, but really he just wants to make a documentary. It's over. He's all spent up. And in a way, it's heartening to know that a monster created by men, a monster robbed of his innocence at such a young age, is kind of having a childhood now, cooped up in his room playing video games, ignoring all the nonsense around him, zoned out until it's time for sleep, until eventually, it's time for death. (laughs) 